What contractual issues should advertisers consider in negotiating global agency agreements? This is your host, Po Yi, a partner in Manette's advertising, marketing, and media practice. And you're listening to Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manette. Today, we have a guest all the way from across the Atlantic Ocean, David Bond, who will be providing a global perspective on negotiating advertising agency agreements. David is a partner and the head of advertising at Field Fisher, a UK-based law firm with offices around the world. David, it's great to have you join me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. There appears to be a lot of advertiser accounts up for review now, and consequently, significant activity in the negotiation of master service agreements, or MSAs, for agency services. I'm certainly seeing this a lot with my clients. In this episode, I'd like to talk about negotiating global master agency agreements, something that I know you do a lot of. In an increasingly connected world, with global brands opting to work with agency holding companies that have a global presence, it's common for brands to negotiate a framework agreement at the global level and supplement the agreement with local market agreements for individual regions or countries. David, as a UK-based attorney that leads many of these negotiations, especially for brands that are headquartered in Europe, what are some of the key considerations for negotiating these global framework MSAs? Yeah, well, Poe, you're right. And, and actually, these global uh, deals are often a little bit more complex than that. You often get the global master framework signed at a parent level. Then you have the local market agreement signed by the regional parent company. But then beneath that, you'll have the individual local subsidiaries agreeing to be bound by the terms of that local market agreement by means of entering into adoption agreements or deeds of adherence. So you've got that three level is quite a common structure. So first off, you need to ensure that the arrangements you're putting in place at the global level are flexible because there is no way that you can come to terms at a global level that will apply in every single jurisdiction. I know we'll come on to talk about some of the differences, but flexibility in the master agreement means that you can then take account of the particular peculiarities of each local market, knowing that those conditions could be quite different. Those differences are either due to market practice, technologies, legislation, or simply the needs of the local subsidiary that might be different from, from the ultimate parent company. So for that reason, it's important to set high standards at a global level, but ensure that the local market agreement can allow for deviations. I guess the second thing I'd say is that it's a global standard. So given the differences between local markets, aim high at the global level, adopt the best standards you can, the platinum standard as a default, and then you can always weaken it at a, a local level. And I guess the third and final point I'd say is time and resources. That's one of the things you need because so many times we end up negotiating a global agreement and that's signed after what can be quite tortuous negotiations and everyone gives a sigh of relief and thinks, job done. But actually, that's the start of the job. You've then got the local market agreements, the adoptions of the local subsidiaries, and actually that can take as long, if not longer, because uh, a lot of the issues are at that local level, which just need to be uh, ironed out. So there, those three things definitely come into play. How do you establish those global standards? And how do you know which standards to be including into the global framework agreement? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and there is no right or wrong, I don't think. And I think we in the UK probably take uh, the same approach in the UK as you would in the US. We tend to apply our own standards. 
So I think we're quite lucky in the UK that our standards are relatively high in terms of the availability of technology, in terms of the legal documentation, the understanding of clients and uh, agencies of the framework and how it all works. So we tend to adopt a UK standard, if you like, and apply that elsewhere simply because we're familiar with it. And I suspect in the US, you may well take the same view. Well, we'll adopt the US standard. But we acknowledge that there will be local differences, but you need to pick a standard. And we're both lucky that we're in jurisdictions that have relatively high standards as a default anyway. Well, then let's talk about regional differences, particularly with respect to the United States. It's my understanding that media buying works quite differently in the U.S. as compared to Europe and perhaps most other parts of the world. Is that correct? To an extent, I think it is. Obviously, you have the agency model in the U.S. In the rest of the world, there's a mix of models. So not all are on principle, but that is the probably the most common model that, that we work in is principle model. And that's certainly the model in the UK. But within Europe, France, Germany, Netherlands, Portugal, they have agency models as well. So the main differences are with an agency model, the agency with a capital A, if you like, is acting as a legal agent and they are serving the client in a fiduciary capacity. So there is a fiduciary duty between the agency and the client. In contrast, certainly in the UK and in many other markets that derive from that structure, the agency is acting as a principal in its own capacity. It's its own business. So it is not uh, acting to serve the needs of the client to the same degree. Obviously, the client is a client. So they are looking after the interests of the client, but they're also looking after their own interests very much. And I guess that's, that's shown above all in an example of inventory media or principal trading arrangements, which are very common in the UK, there's a situation where the agency will purchase media in its own name, in its own right, without any client involved. They'll buy the space with the intention of selling it on when a client needs it. So they're not buying that space on behalf of the agency in any way. They're buying that media inventory as stock in trade to sell as and when. You can look at it like a car salesman. They're buying 20 new vehicles, new cars that they'll sell to 20 customers that want those cars. So it's a very different model in that sense. And also the issues over sequential liability. Again, as I understand it in the US, that's the model that you would use. And then there's a whole issue over protecting the agency for a situation where the, the client does not pay for media spend. Well, if the advertiser doesn't pay the agency, then the agency is not obliged to pay the uh, publisher. Whereas in the UK, it's very different. The principal has a direct relationship with the media owner, so they're liable. So as a result of that, the principal agents, they need to be sure about the credit and the financial covenants of their clients. And that's where you do get issues over credit insurance. So if the financial covenant of the client is not strong enough, they will seek to take out insurance or they will minimize the amount of credit they offer because there's a real risk in the UK under the principal model that they won't get paid. I think we've definitely imported some of the things that you talked about, the idea of inventory media, the principal transactions, and those issues are being discussed a lot in negotiating just US-only agreements. And in fact, this idea of an agency purchasing media time and then reselling it to its various clients is a model that has been going on for some time. And a lot of clients don't know exactly what that means because they're worried about not getting the value, not understanding, not understanding, having this transparency that everybody is looking for. But it seems in the UK, it's such an established practice that's not really an issue. Is that correct? 
is an established practice. You're definitely right there. Uh, is it an issue? It is an issue to the degree that it goes counter to the themes that have been prevalent in the market over recent years in terms of transparency and accountability, because the logic is there. The agency will say, well, we've bought this uh, space at our risk and we'll sell it at whatever cost we want, because why should we disclose the detail of this? Because it's our risk. And if no client buys it, then we're left with media. That sounds logical, but really when you dig down, that's not really what happens because the agencies buy this space knowing full well that they're going to sell it to their clients because they've got their clients on their books. They're advising the strategy on buying for their own clients and they can price it in a way that is going to be attractive to the client. So is it at their risk? I suppose on paper it is, but in reality, it's not really. And it's just a timing issue. And the arrangements that I certainly see between agencies and the media owners, they're very much dictated by the agency and often as not documented after the fact. So at the end of the year, they'll start arranging for volumes and payments. So it's a little bit of smoke and mirrors, but certainly at one level, you can see the logic from agencies to say, well, we've bought this at our risk. The only question I'd have is just how much risk is there for the agency? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about one other issue that I see quite a bit being negotiated, at least in the U.S., which is the idea of subcontractor and vendor liability. This is such a hotly debated issue here. How is it typically handled in the U.K. and the rest of Europe? Yeah, it's equally hotly debated, heavily negotiated. I mean, subcontractors generally are fulfilling the obligations of the agency. So the agency remains liable for those obligations. So whether you get as far as saying the agency is liable for its subcontractors is one thing, but the agency would generally accept liability for performance of those obligations, whether they're performing them or through a subcontractor. A vendor is slightly different. And typically over here in the Europe, I don't know if it's the same in, in the US, but vendor would be any entity excluding media owners that is engaged by the agency on behalf of a client, including the likes of technology platforms, market research companies, private marketplaces, technical service providers, they would all come under the, the vendor group heading. And in terms of liability, there tends to be a disconnect between the agency accepting liability or not. The norm is that the agency just pushes back and says, no, we're not liable for them. They're third parties. That's not our responsibility, which from the client point of view, we argue, well, you're engaging them on our behalf, surely you have to be liable for them because we're not directly contracting with them. So therefore, what do we do if there's an issue? And that is an area that is still not satisfactory in many of the agreements that I see. Agencies are adamant that they would not accept responsibility. But equally, the clients don't have a direct relationship with these vendors. So there is a gap and there is a reliance upon the agency making warm noises and doing what they can to facilitate engagement by the vendors and performance, but not really the full back-to-back type of uh, position that we would normally expect if a third party was engaging a vendor to provide a service to us. We'd expect it to be seamless. Right. And I think another issue related to that is that when an agency is working with what you call a vendor, not a subcontractor, the contract that they have is their own contract and they don't really want to disclose the terms of those contracts. And so the client in many cases may be left with being liable or being responsible for something that they don't even know anything about because they don't have the terms in front of them. Yeah, 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 exactly, which is bizarre. And in most other areas, it would never happen. 
there's a lot of things in the advertising environment that you look at in other areas and you think, well, why is that done that way? Because it doesn't make sense. And there's a lot of resistance to change. But they are changing. And the changes over the last two or three years have been quite significant, certainly in my experience. The sorts of terms that are being agreed now by agencies would never have been considered five years ago. It's been a massive, massive change, but it still needs to go further. Related to liability issues, what about limitation of liability clauses? What's the standard in the UK and in global framework agreements that you typically negotiate? There's usually a liability cap, and then there are oftentimes exclusions to the liability cap. Yes, and there's often multiple caps. So there may be a cap of, often it is 12 months, uh, media fees for general breaches, often a higher cap, maybe three, four times annual fees for breach of data or security. And then, yes, you're right, unlimited liability for certain other areas like intellectual property claims. The return of rebates shouldn't be part of this. Breach of confidentiality, breach of indemnities is often uncapped. But they are very much in line with normal sort of service contract negotiations. There's always a horse trading over liability and exclusions, which tends not to be that different from a service contract, actually, in my experience. It's not so specific to advertising. It's often influenced as well by the client's corporate PLC governance as well, what they can and can't accept in terms of indemnities or exclusions liability. Right. But I think the discussion becomes much more complex because used to be a lot of agencies, they were okay with not agreeing to a cap. But I think as agencies are part of holding companies, holding companies have the same compliance and corporate policies that they try to push down on all of their agencies that they hold. In which case, the issue that you see with clients are also happening with the agencies that, that neither party really wants to deviate from their corporate policies. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. Yes, the large group agency companies exactly the same as the clients. And again, that's kind of to be expected. It's part of the benefits and part of the price you pay with dealing with global large agency networks because they have the power to do the same as the large clients in terms of imposing their corporate governance onto the relationships. But generally, the the caps, they are hotly negotiated, but they are generally resolved in a mutually acceptable way that covers both parties and covers the main risks between them. I have to agree with that. Speaking of all of these issues, which we kept saying they're hotly debated, there are standard industry forms for agency contracts that are used. And I think in the UK, they're used much more frequently than they are in the US. Could you talk about some of the standard forms that you guys use, especially for global framework agreements? Yeah, it's a very interesting standard forms because I was heavily involved in the UK standard form that was produced by ISBAR, which is the Trade Association for British Advertisers. And actually, my experience is that standard industry forms are less frequently used for global frameworks, uh, even in the UK. And I think that's simply because the industry bodies that generate these templates, like ISBAR or the ANA, they're focused on their own markets. They're not focused on the global market. So certainly when we were working with um, ISBA on their template, we were very conscious that it would have a global impact, but we were drafting that for the UK market. So all the parties involved in that exercise, and I'm talking here about the advertisers, the media consultancies, the network agencies that we consulted with and ISBA itself, they all knew that what we agreed in the UK under the ISBA framework would have an impact outside, even though we were not addressing a global agreement. It was a very much a UK specific agreement. And that I think is most clearly illustrated by two points. One is every conversation we had with the agencies, 
they would often include, yes, but if we agreed that in the UK, we, it'll be very difficult for us to agree that or to differ from that elsewhere. And we know that these agreements are global. So what we agree in the UK is imposed on us elsewhere. And also just from the example that um, when the ANA wanted to put together their own standard form, they initially asked if they could use the ISBA template as a base for that. So they took the ISBA form, adapted it for the US market, but it was still very similar to the UK version. So as you said about the concepts mixing, mm-hmm. the standard forms mix between them. And obviously the ANA has been developed since and has changed. But uh, in terms of the generation of these standard forms, I do you think they tend to be local rather than global when they're created? I think that global will only be created if you've got a global body that is taking a global view on an area. And that's relatively rare. Yeah, I don't really see that happening anytime soon. It's just way too difficult. So David, having forms is great, but what is considered the standard and what can be negotiated? I think the UK model might be different than the US model. I'd love to get your perspective on that. Yeah, that's also my experience of the two. So I think different organizations just have very different approaches to how they use standard forms. And I guess that's influenced by what is the norm in their own market. But to use the UK and US as examples, and maybe contrast between the ISBA template and the ANA template, certainly I can speak completely openly about ISBA's approach. Their approach is to reach industry consensus. That has been always their philosophy across all types of uh, standard contracts that they have. So they involve all parties to reach that, uh, that form that is acceptable, albeit not perfect, but acceptable for everyone. And that's what we used to do with the old version of media buying contracts and the current version of creative contracts. ISBA received a degree of criticism for engaging with network agencies because the result is it led to a weakening, quote weakening, of the standard form. But the intention was to try to minimize the areas of difference, to try to cut down on the amount of time that would be spent negotiating. So I should really stress, though, that ISBA's template was never actually endorsed by the network agencies. It was because there were too many points of difference to enable them to endorse it, but it did have input from them. But in contrast, in the US, certainly my perception of the ANA template is that it is intended to provide the strongest, most robust opening position for the client. Certainly not a template that the agency would, would willingly sign up to. It was the first step in a negotiation. And as such, it did not include the compromise positions that the ISBA template did. Neither approach is right or wrong. They're just different. And anyone that looks at the ISBA contract and expects it to be robust, strong, very pro-advertiser will think, hmm, this is a little bit weak. So what is crucial is that whoever uses the templates knows what their intention is, knows where they're trying to sit on that line from aggressive to passive. The ISPA template is very much aimed at being a compromise and being something that can be easily agreed by agencies, whereas my perception of the ANA contract is something that is the opening gambit from the client and will need relatively heavy negotiation. As I say, neither is right or wrong, they're just different. But if you don't know where they sit on that scale, you go into the negotiation on the back foot. David, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and experience with us today, which I'm sure our listeners will find quite informative. We have a tradition in this podcast. We end our podcast with a couple of practice tips for our listeners. What are your practice tips for companies preparing to negotiate a global agency agreement? Well, I'd probably give three just to be difficult. Uh, First, (laughs) 
would be to involve the lawyers at the very outset during the tender process, simply because in my experience, that is the best way to maximize the benefits that clients can derive from that tender process. So involve the lawyers there rather than once you've made your selection of agency and you've got the terms, at least an outline agreed. The second tip would be ensure that your legal advisors are connected with your other advisors, so your media consultants or potential auditors, to make sure everyone is working to the same outcome. And for example, make sure your auditors can see the proposed audit provisions, the record definitions, the NDA, to make sure that they are all in line with that. And thirdly, give sufficient time and resources for that whole process to take place, especially if you're working from a global framework down to the local market adoption Make sure you have time to do that because you end up having subsequent issues if you get everything global level signed, but the local is not signed, but yet the arrangements and the services have begun without the local market knowing the terms on which they're going to be operating. So yeah, give yourself time and resources to get the job done. Thank you for joining us once again on Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. And thank you, David, for contributing your time and expertise. As we discussed in today's episode, There are numerous contractual issues and standards advertisers should consider when negotiating global agency agreements. In our globalized digital world, these issues will continue to evolve, so stay tuned for more. I'm also very pleased to announce that this summer, my partners and I will be answering listener questions in a special mailbag episode, and we are officially accepting questions. Please visit this episode's caption to access the submission form, as well as David's contact information and additional resources related to this episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. The views expressed on the podcast reflect the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an attorney-client or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction.